one of the questions that has been on the minds of believers for 2,000 years now is, when is Jesus coming back? Certainly has been the topic of a lot of uh, interest, certainly uh, a number of writings, actually a little bit of craziness, but I, I think that's the wrong question to ask. The, the question, when is Jesus coming back, is, is not the right question because there are two things that we know, two things that are just ironclad truths from Scripture. One, Jesus is returning victoriously. And two, we need to be ready when he comes back. And so the better question is not, when is Jesus coming back, but am I ready? Am I ready for his return? And as we jump into 1 John chapter 2 today, we're going to see just right from the beginning that he talks about how we are living in the last days. And our purpose today isn't to try to figure out exactly what that means and when he's coming back, but it is to say, okay, how do we make sure that we are prepared? Because Jesus will return and we want to be ready. So let's, let's jump in to 1 John chapter 2. Starting in verse 18, and it says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the person, it is, excuse me, it is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father, and this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real and not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So the goal there is that, that we be prepared, right? That we be confident before him. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. But let's talk for just a minute because this is a subject that has uh, been on the minds of so many people for so long and probably for each one of us. What does it mean when John says that we are living in the last hour? What does he mean by that? And, and why did he say that 2,000 years ago? I mean, looking back on that, we, we, we said, it, was he confused when he talked about, when Scripture talks about being in the last days and John talking about the last hour? I mean, one thing that we do know for, for sure is that the New Testament writers lived in anticipation of Jesus' return. Even just immediately after he, you know, his death, burial, uh, resurrection, ascension back into heaven from that point they were waiting for him to come back but they described that time as being that we were in the the last days or it says here the last hour so what does that mean i, I think there's some insightful um 
comments from John Piper. He was talking about this and, and uh, really just emphasizing the fact that for us to live in the last days, what that means is that Jesus has accomplished everything. Everything is completed and, and uh, ready for him to come back. He put it this way. John Piper said, we are in the last days. We have been for 2,000 years. And therefore, Jesus is like a king in complete control, standing with his army outside the city, waiting to take it captive. Nothing can stand between him and that capture except his own choice. I think that's, that last little phrase there is, is, is so insightful. The only thing that holds Jesus back is his, his own choice. Everything has been done. And so in that sense, we are in the last days. But then we look at Scripture and we get some insights into why the delay. I, mean, I, I don't know if you're like me. Or you, you just sometimes like, just come on back already. You know, just let's, let's just... Let's get done with all this mess and make things right. Why doesn't he? We get some, uh, some clarity from Peter's writing. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So this definition of these last days and in his return. First of all, it says that a day is, you know, a thousand years is like a day to God. So really what seems like a long, long time has been a couple of days. Two thousand years in God's eyes is like a couple of days. But the reason that he delays, it says, is because he is patient and he wants everyone to come to repentance. Doesn't that just speak to God's heart for his people, for us? And that's, in, that's encouraging to those of us who know him, but if, that's encouraging too for those that, that maybe would say, you know, well, I've, I think I've missed my opportunity. I, I think that that I've gone my own direction, and those sometimes that maybe have just lived a very hard life and just turned away from God, there's this sense that I have missed my chance. I, I've blown my opportunity. That's not true. I mean, what we see in this passage is that it's never too late and that God is patient with you, desiring for you to come back to Him. And if you've been running from God for a long, long time, or even a short period of time, the opportunity is there to turn back around and to come to him. That's, that's God's desire. And that's why Jesus is delaying his return because he wants people to come to know him. So my encouragement is if you've been running, stop. Stop running from him and just come back to him. And for those of us that have a relationship with him, that should encourage us to be active in sharing our faith with those around us. Knowing that, that God's desire is for everyone to come to a relationship with him. And so the reason these last days keep getting dragged on longer and longer is because it's an opportunity for us to take the good news and to share that good news with those uh, that, that desperately need to hear it. Frankly, though, most of us don't live like we're in the last days, do we? We don't live with that urgency I don't think we really have that mindset that, you know, it's kind of that, that like the no huddle offense kind of a thing. You know, it's, 
maybe, maybe it's not down to the very end, but it's like we got to speed things up a little bit here. we got to get with it, get, get the pace, pick up the pace a little bit. Because we are in the last days, we got to get busy. That's the mindset. That's the, the, the heart that we should have. And uh, sometimes we don't pay enough attention to the fact that we are in the last days to allow that to motivate us. The flip side to that is, you know, we can make the mistake of not paying enough attention to Jesus' return. But you can also pay too much attention to it. You can also get so consumed by that that everything revolves around trying to figure out when is Jesus coming back. And maybe you know people that you know, do the calculations and this prophecy says this and this says this and I'm going to take this and put this together and, and calculate. And we think, you know, and whatever the year is. I saw something as I was just briefly looking on the internet. I don't remember what it was, 2033 or something. Somebody figured it out, you know, that, that this is when it's going to happen. And that's not healthy either. It's not healthy to run down a path where we're either trying to figure out a day because Scripture says nobody knows. It even said when Jesus was on earth, he didn't even know. So it's very unhealthy for us to try to figure things out like that. Um, But what we do need to do is be prepared. We need to be ready. So that's what I want us to talk about today. I think that's the direction that we get in this passage. How do we live with that eager expectation? How How do we live ready for Jesus to come back? And the first thing he talks about here, he talks about some antichrist and false teaching and things like that. And so here's the first thing that we need to do is we need to recognize false teachers. We need to be able to identify what is true and what isn't so that we can follow the truth. John says in uh, verse 19, uh, actually verse 18, says, You have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come. Um, that, that concept of an antichrist, that's a, that's a term they are probably familiar with, right? We talk about the antichrist. Most of the time, you don't hear people use the phrase, many antichrists, plural. That's hard to say. We talk about the antichrist, meaning, that, and they're, they're, the Bible does speak to, to the fact that there will be this one dominant figure who will lead this end-time rebellion against God. That would be what we would call the antichrist. But it also says there are many antichrists coming before this one figure. In order for us to understand and maybe get a little better, uh, get a better concept of what that term means, because that's a loaded term. Just break it down. Anti and Christ. The, The Greek word for anti is not necessarily the way we would use it in our language today. I mean, there is some sense of that. But when you talk about being anti-something, for example, one of the big terms in our culture today, anti-vaxxer, right? Someone who is an anti-vaxxer means that they are against any form of a vaccine. That's typically how we use the word anti in our language. And so an anti-Christ or the anti-Christ would mean somebody who stands in direct opposition to Christ. And there is some truth to that because the things that the anti-Christ will teach and lead will be contrary to the teachings of Christ. But the word actually has a little different meaning in the Greek. What, what it really means is to take the place of. This, this term anti really means in place of. Let me give you an example. Matthew 2 verse 22 But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of, that's that word, his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. 
He was reigning in place of his father. He was taking the place of his father. When you hear the word antichrist, think of it in terms of someone who wants to take the place of Jesus. Not necessarily someone that is coming, you know, just kind of a full-on frontal assault kind of a thing. In fact, I'm convinced that the antichrist will be somebody who has a lot of attractive qualities about him. There'd be somebody who draws people to him that, that, that it's not going to just be overtly evil, that everybody's going to look and go, you know, see little, like little devil horns popping up out of his head. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be somebody who uh, is winsome and able to attract a following and basically is saying, come follow me rather than follow Christ. He's taking the place of Christ. And that's why it says that there are many antichrists who have come see in this sense anyone who seeks to take the place of Jesus is an antichrist anyone who would who would seek to follow people people after get people to follow after himself or herself or whatever it may be rather than following after Christ in that sense that's why he says that many antichrists have come now here's something that's really disturbing look at verse 19 He's talking about these antichrists, and it says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. You getting that? Where did the antichrist come from? They came from the church. They went out from us, he said. Now, he makes it very clear they did not belong to us, and that became evident by the fact that they left, and they went out and did what they did. But guys, that should be a little bit disturbing to us, maybe more than just a little bit, to think that from within the church can come these antichrists. I suspect these would be people who have some level of biblical knowledge that can speak you know, some type of biblical terminology enough that maybe pacifies certain Christians and think, oh, well, they're throwing around these certain terms, they must be okay. Uh, but they're really not desiring to point anyone toward Jesus. You, you get over into chapter 4, and, and let me just read a few verses for you from, from what he says in chapter 4. First um, John 4, 1 through 3 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is in the world. So in this case, by the way, the very specific test was, do they acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh? That was uh, becoming a big issue because of the rise of what we call Gnosticism. This was a a teaching in the early church. Gnosticism coming from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. They taught that that really what mattered was this secret knowledge of God. And that, that the spiritual was all that really mattered. And they downplayed the physical. And so anything material or physical was evil, anything spiritual and kind of a, that you could attain through this secret knowledge was what you would seek after. And so they denied that Jesus was really God in human flesh because God would never take on human flesh because human flesh is evil. That was the teaching and the thought. And so the, the litmus test, or one of them at this point, was anyone who acknowledges that Jesus came in the flesh. Now that's not so much where we are today. I don't think that is our primary litmus test today, but, but for us what we could say is anyone who teaches something that is not in alignment with what Scripture teaches about the nature of Jesus, 
you know, who he is, um, anything from, you know, virgin birth to sinless life to the miracles he performed, his death, burial, resurrection, all those things, uh, those would be the, the, the foundational things for us to look for. And anything that strays from that and from biblical teaching would be fall under this category of an antichrist. Or maybe another way of saying that is anyone who, who puts the spotlight more on themselves than they do on God. And you've heard me say this before as we've talked about these types of things in the past. One of my concerns is that we live in a culture that puts spiritual leaders up on such a high pedestal that sometimes those who are in positions of spiritual leadership can fall into that trap of really it becoming more about them and less about pointing people to Jesus. And I have to tell you, that, that is something that is always on the forefront of my mind. And by the way, if you ever wonder what's going on behind your, 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 your pastures uh, up in here in, in the brain that you don't ever see, that you don't ever hear about, let me tell you one of those things is, is this exactly. I, I love to share stories, and often, you know, it's kind of become the joke when my family walks in is, well, you know, what's Blake going to tell about you today? You know, what stories are going to come out today? And I like to share those stories because I think it helps build a connection uh, with, with us as normal people, and, and I like to share this is what God is doing in my life. But if I could be totally honest with you, I get a little nervous every time I start telling, especially like last week, I told a long story about myself. It always makes me a little bit nervous just because of this one thing, because it's never to be about us. And I, I, I think that comes across uh, that that's not the intention and, and the goal, but we don't point the, the spotlight toward ourselves. That's not the goal. The goal is to, to point it toward Jesus, and so he's telling them to, to watch out for those that are seeking to take the place of Jesus. But then he goes on in verse 20 and gives them a little encouragement here. He says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Again, he's reminding them. We talked about this last week in verses 12 through 14, where he reminds them what is true about them. He's doing the same thing here. Let me remind you what is true. What is true is that you have an anointing from God. That you are chosen by God, that, that God wants to work through you. And this anointing, by the way, is something that every follower of Jesus has. This isn't something that you catch or something that, you know, maybe certain special people, God gives it to them and not to others. What he's talking about here is the fact that, that we have the Spirit in us and God works through us, which is an amazing thing. And that's why we talk so frequently about the importance of figuring out how we've been gifted by God and plugging in and serving and doing our part to let God work through us because that's an incredible privilege. But that's this anointing that we have, right? It may look different in, in, in specific uh, areas, more for, for some in one way and others in another. But he's telling us we all have this anointing from God. And all of this flows out of who we are in Christ. It flows out of our relationship with Christ. That's why it says in verse 24, as for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. By the way, this word that is translated remains, some of you will have a translation that says abides, and that's actually a better translation, a better idea. Judd talked about that a moment ago, the importance of abiding in Christ. It's amazing how frequently this word shows up in these few verses over and over and over again. Uh, he just keeps talking about abiding in Christ. And here's why I, I really prefer that 
translation of the word abide rather than remain. Because abide, it sounds so much more active. It sounds so much more personal and intimate. And it is. I mean, if, if I were to say to you, for example, I were to, to, to be speaking to a couple, a married couple, and my uh, encouragement for them is, I want to encourage you to remain together as a couple. If you use that word remain, what that's communicating is don't split up, probably, right? Stick it out. Maybe you're having a hard time. Stay with it. Remain there. Don't run away. And that's maybe exactly what somebody needs to hear today. But that's totally different from saying my encouragement to you is to abide together as a couple. Whereas remain means, you know, get a stiff upper lip and don't, you know, don't run the other direction. If, if you were to think about abiding as a couple, that's, that's a different story. I mean, the picture I have of remaining together is maybe one's on one end of the house and the other one's on the other end of the house. You know, they're under the same roof because they're remaining together. If you're abiding together... You're probably not on different ends of the house. In fact, there's another image that comes to mind that I won't describe right now when I think about a couple abiding together. It's, there's, there's intimacy there. There's closeness together. So when we abide in our relationship with God, that's more than just kind of you know, being under the same roof. Oh, that's, there's, there's closeness. And he says it over and over and over again. And, and this is a theme that is so important to John because he heard Jesus say it. In fact, we, we get a record of that in John's gospel. In John 15, verses 4 and 5, it says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So here's the, the second main idea if you hadn't picked this up already and that is that we must abide in Christ best thing in the world we can do to get ready for Jesus return and for that matter the best thing we can do to recognize false teaching and everything else is to abide in him it's to go deeper in our relationship with him so what does that look like what does it look like for us to abide in him well to, to let God's word abide in us, and he, he talks about that, uh, letting the word, uh, again, it says remain here, but read that as abide. L letting the word abide in us is taking it beyond just, you know, stuff that we know up here. I mean, that's why one of our five core things that we do as a church, we say, is that we apply the Bible to real life. It's not about just learning more of the Bible, it's about taking God's word and putting it into practice in our lives. So that we let the word abide in us, then we're, we're allowing it to take root inside of, of who we are. I mean, going back to what we said last week, we were talking about, um, in the passage right before this, avoiding loving the world and things of the world. And, and verse 16 says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And we talked about those three things. I mean, think about how important it is for us to say if we are abiding in Christ, just to apply it to those things that we talked about last week. It, we cannot follow the, 
the, the lust of the flesh, just satisfying everything we want. Uh, let's take the one that probably comes to mind first for most of us, some type of, of sexual fulfillment if there's involvement with pornography or some type of sexual relationship that isn't uh, in alignment with Scripture. You can't be involved in that and abiding in Christ at the same time. Those two don't go together. The lust of the eyes. I mean, if our heart is chasing after something that we just always want, there's got to be something else, something more, and we're fixated on that, we're not abiding in our relationship with Christ. I mean, the pride of life, if, if, it, if it's all about us, which ties into this whole antichrist thing, but, but if it's all about me and putting myself forward, I can't do that and abide in Christ at the same time. They, they don't go together. And so if we're really abiding in Christ, then we're taking what God says, we're taking God's word and allowing it to impact how we live. James 1.22 really sums up, says, do not merely listen to the world, to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. Let the word abide in you and, and do what it says. You know, the more we allow God's word to abide in us, the more our relationship with God is going to abide as well. So as we talk about developing intimacy and going deeper in our relationship with God, that's where it has to start. And so that's a simple question. In fact, if you're, if you're using our, our online uh, bulletin, that's actually in the sermon notes today. I, I would encourage you to fill in some thoughts as you think about that to this simple question, which is, what are you doing to allow God's word to abide in you. I mean, really, that, that's, that's not a rhetorical question, but what are the specific things that you are doing to allow the word to abide in you? Is it you know, spending time? Or do you have some kind of consistent way of, of reading scripture? Is there, do you meditate on scripture? Are you memorizing scripture? Are you, you know, are you journaling so that you can figure out how to put it into practice? I mean, what are the things that you're doing to Help the word of God abide in you. Verse 25 tells us the end result of that as we do all of that and what we have to look forward to. It says this is what he promised us, eternal life. See, that, that's what it leads toward. We are developing intimacy right now in our relationship with God that is going to prepare us for the relationship that we will have with him that will extend into eternity. That's our motivation. That's the goal. This is kind of like the, uh, the bonus structure in a work environment. It's like you work really hard. You, know, you hit these numbers. You accomplish these things. You're going to be rewarded with this. Now, this is not, we're not talking about a, a, a material or a financial reward, but it's kind of a similar idea. It's like I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do this because I'm motivated by some uh, prospect of a reward over here. Saying, look, that, that reward is coming for us. Our, our reward is in eternity. We get to experience that forever um, when this life is over. But then there's a little reality check in verse 26. I mean, that's all good. That's encouraging. That's stuff to look forward to. But he reminds them, but I'm, let, I'm writing you these things. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. See, there are always going to be those who try to lead you astray. And that's why, going back to what we said a moment ago, it's so important um, to, to let the Word 
abide in us. You know when we get led astray? It's when we don't know our stuff, right? I'll tell you, one of my, my greatest fears, I've probably said this before, is uh, whenever I have car troubles and I take it to a mechanic, I don't know a whole lot about vehicles. That's not my expertise. And so I'm always afraid they're going to just tell me something, you know, that sounds right, and I'm not going to have a clue. You know, and they might totally be leading me astray, but if they start talking about, you know, axle tramps and actuators and balance shafts and things, I'm just, I'm just going to be like, I, you know, I'm probably going to do the guy thing and nod like I know what they're talking about. You know, I have no clue. I'm just, just being honest with you. It would be easy for me to be led astray because I don't know my stuff. But have someone from the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or somebody show up at my door and try to argue me into their way of thinking, that's not going to happen. Why? Because I know my stuff there. You know, We only get led astray when we don't know our stuff. And so that's why he says this is so, so very important because you know, I don't want to be taken advantage of by a mechanic, but that's not nearly as important as the possibility of being led astray spiritually. And this has eternal consequences. And so be ready. Know your stuff. Let the word abide in you so that we can be confident. And that's, that's how it ends. Verse 28 uh, it says, Now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. You want to be confident in your faith? You want to be, by the way, that word can also mean bold. I think about the times when I'm most bold and when I'm most confident. It's when, when I know, right? When I've done my prep, preparation uh, and I'm ready. At that point, we can have confidence. We can have boldness. We don't have to worry about being ashamed when Jesus returns. So, let's get ready. Guys, it's important for us to live understanding that we are in the last days. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus is coming back next week, next year, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, 300 years from now? I don't know. But I do know this, that we need to be ready right now. We need to live with a constant expectation of Jesus' return. How do we do that? Well, the best thing I can tell you is to, to let the word abide in you. That's how we recognize false teaching. That's how we prepare. But as we abide in Christ... That prepares us for Jesus' return. So my challenge to you today is this. Is there anything in your life that's keeping you from abiding in Christ? And if so, are you willing to do something about it? Are you willing right now to say, I'm not going to continue down that road anymore. but I'm going to do what's necessary in order to allow my relationship with God to be what it needs to be so that I can really know Him intimately. Let's pray together. Lord, I do pray that today, that if there's anything in us that's keeping us from abiding in you, Lord, would you reveal that to us right now? Would you show us what that is? Would you, um, Lord, give us the courage and the, and the honesty to deal with it? Lord, our desire is to know you more deeply. I pray that over our church. I want that in my own life. But, Lord, I want that. I desire that for this church family that we would know you deeply, that we would truly abide in our relationship with you. That's, that's what I pray. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.